Hello, Canada and the rest of the world, and welcome once again to the Netflix Podcast, the show where we review the movies available to stream on Canadian Netflix. I'm your host, Dylan Clark Moore. A couple of notes before we get started. First of all, very excited, very proud to announce that the Netflix Podcast has joined up with the Electric Streams Media Podcast Network, which is designed around celebrating the best and worst of streaming media. So I'm going to be joining up with currently three other shows, uh, each detailing a different aspect of streaming media. So we've got Netfreaks, which you may have heard me talk about before, having done a guest spot with them. So Netfreaks talks exclusively about Netflix original series. Then we have Organized Prime, which covers Amazon original series, as well as a brand new show that's coming out soon. Uh, talking all about HBO content. So if that at all sounds like something that you're interested in, you can subscribe to Electric Streams Media, and all four of those shows, including the Netflix podcast, will be coming straight to your ears. The Netflix podcast is still going to be available on its own, so feel free to sample it out, give it a try, and uh, let me know what you think. Secondly, I do want to issue an explicit language warning for this episode. Uh, Nothing particularly blue in here, just me being my regular cussy self. And lastly, as far as any corrections, uh, the only one that I really want to get ahead of is there was a movie that I was struggling to come up with the name of about halfway through the discussion, and that movie is called The Immortalists, which is a documentary all about two scientists who are seeking the answers to human immortality. So if that sounds like something you might be interested in, check it out. It's on Netflix. Uh, With all that out of the way, let's get down to it. I'm here today with a guest that you've heard before. This is his second appearance on the show after spending some time talking about Beyond the Black Rainbow. Let's give a big welcome to Mr. Mike Grasso. Hi, Mike. Thanks, Dylan. How are you doing this evening? I am doing better than I was while I was rage watching the movie that we're going to talk about. I've had a day to decompress. (laughs) I'm not going to start hurling shit right away. Fair enough. I was going to say. I got it. I, I got a, I got a light out on Twitter last night, so. <laughs> um, so uh, I'll ask you, same as I always do. Is there anything cool you've been watching on Netflix recently, Mike? Well, you know, again, I think I think the last time I got together, I I, I kind of said how Netflix was kind of my wife and my kind of connection for documentaries, and I, I at least here down in the states, the the, the the selections really really starting to kind of winnow down. It's it's it, there's so many originals now, and uh, as far as like you know stuff that's on the platform that's that's original that that's not original that I've not seen. Um so we've been kind of my wife and I have been kind of watching, you know, sort of televisual comfort food. Um they recently put the first couple of seasons of the Great British Bake Off or whatever it's called in the states so it doesn't infringe <laughs> on the Betty Crocker trademark of uh, the Great British Baking Show, I guess is what it's called. And we had, we had watched these seasons before. Again, my wife's British, so Whenever any of her friends or family are talking about a show that's airing in the UK, 
we have to find it and watch it. And, uh, you know, th- there are several ways you can go about doing that that aren't exactly, um, you know, above board. But we watched all I think we pretty much watched all the seasons of uh, British Bake Off when they were on and we're rewatching them now. And I got to admit, on second viewing, the show is way more tense, even though I kind of remember who won every <laughs> week and everything. It, there's just something like the, the the first time I watched it, it's like, oh, look at all this food. It's making me hungry. It's really, really beautiful. But the second time around, it's just making me incredibly tense, like any other reality show would. And the other reality so, show. So, sorry, give me a second. Yeah. Um, just because I've never seen it. Oh, you um, haven't? Oh, okay. So is it is it exactly what it sounds like? It's like a reality cooking competition? Yeah, basically. But it's but it's it's sort of brand is that it's very gentle and British and sort of like they have these, you know, uh, interspersed shots of like the farm that they, they have the, 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 the baking competition on. And so you get to see like you know, beautiful, you know, rain dappled green British fields, you know, and sort of it's, um, you know, it's been very, very popular on the, in the UK. They recently had a contract dispute with the hosts and had to hire a whole new batch of hosts, which a lot of diehards over in the UK are very, very dubious about. Right. That's Um, the first time I ever heard about this show was ah, hearing about how angry people were about it. And I was like, people are real pissy about this baking show. So it's it's like an institution, right? Well, that's the thing. People in in the UK make things institutions so quickly and easily. (laughs) It seems to be part of their sort of cultural character over there. And yeah, this is definitely one of those things that in its five or six years has kind of achieve that status of uh, don't you dare mess with our bake-off you know (laughs) Um, but it it is it is a good show and if it is the first time you're seeing it 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 is very it's very amiable and very relaxing it's not nearly as cutthroat as any sort of silly you know american competition reality show is so it's it's um it's worth checking out but it, it does make me tense and the other show that makes me tense that we watch it's a british reality show um, is Grand Designs, where uh, rich people in usually in the London area uh, completely remodel their homes. Uh, Jenny likes this. My wife Jenny likes this because it's kind of like The Sims. They get to rip the roofs off of houses and put new walls <laughs> in. But they, they get to inevi- drown people in pools. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. But inevitably they go over budget, and that gets me anxious. And you know, uh, you know, John had to sell his entire business for you know 800,000 pounds to pay for the overage of the it's just so oh it's and it's it's such conspicuous consumption and it's just I, I I watch this stuff you know and I go can we put on the Simpsons or Law and Order right now something that's complete I've seen a million times and so I don't have to worry about all these people's problems um right. the um the yeah, other that's a, that's a funny contrast to the is there an adjectival form of the word meme mimetic Mimetic, yeah sure yeah um so the way that people talk about american uh redesign shows where it's like jenny runs an artisanal mushroom factory and john (laughs) paints birds their budget five trillion dollars yeah that's exactly what this is like yeah it's it's pretty it's pretty amazing they're all very trendy media types in london uh, and the other show I tried to give a, a a try to past week on Netflix was the new Mystery Science Theater. I'm a I'm a Misty from way way back, like back when it was on Comedy Central in the mid '90s. Um, I couldn't get through the first episode. Um, really? I, yeah, I don't know if you've watched a lot of Mystery Science Theater, but you know, I, one thing that I noticed with this reboot is that they are really trying to pack in the jokes, the riffs in the theater, and. It, it just felt like they were just reading them off a list. There was nothing organic to it. It felt really contrived. And 
And so I, I got through the first half hour of the first episode of Reptilicus, the, the Danish monster movie from the 1960s. And I had seen Reptilicus before, actually. Um, <laughs> completely Wonders, unrelated. Yeah, yeah un, unmistied. <laughs> um, and I tell you, I just I couldn't get through it. And it, I didn't feel like, oh, they've ruined Mystery Science Theater because I understand it's 2017. If they redo it, it's going to be faster paced. It's going to be packed full of jokes. Um, it was too packed full of jokes for me. The new hosts and the new, you know, people on the show were fine, but it it just didn't feel like Mystery Science Theater. It felt weird, and so I just I just didn't finish even the first episode. So, I I, I guess I, what... I, I'm curious because I I haven't watched any of you know, the original run or anything, but it's, oh okay, uh, I think it's like a 98 percent match for me right now. Um, oh wow! <laughs> have you have, have you looked at what your what your matches are now since they've changed? Netflix's whole well the, system. The movie we're doing tonight was only a seventy six percent, which kind of shocked me. This this movie's at least a ninety eight for me. <laughs> um, so, but I haven't I haven't actually looked at that, but I'm going to have to because that's um, maybe that will help me avoid the tense uh, reality shows that are on uh, that are on Netflix yeah. and find something a little more calming. But uh, yeah. Well, it'll it'll be interesting if I uh, I think I've got it on my list now. So if I check that out, then I'll be able to give you a a fresh set of millennial eyes perspective on what it's like to uh, to be part of the, the new gen of I, of Mystery Science Theater three thousand. I would be interested to see how how you like it. Definitely. Uh, so as for me, I, I I've been just really lazy when it comes to my searching. So just been watching whatever's closest to the top of what uh, whatever's on my list. So just sure. bam, if I don't want if I don't want to watch it, it's gone from my list. So I watched the two new Dave Chappelle specials. Oh, okay, yeah. Which I have I have no ties to him emotionally. I didn't okay. uh, watch the Chappelle show growing up or anything. Mm-hmm. Uh, I would say that if you watch the first one and you're kind of on the fence about it, the second one is a bit better. Interesting. Um, but I just started the, the Lucas Brothers special. I'm not done it yet, but I'm already finding it to be more more punchy and mm-hmm. more just like laugh out loud funny okay. than, than either of the Chappelle ones. So... Maybe that's the, I guess, the dark horse of the comedy specials for this month. I'd, I'd, uh, I'd put my money on the Lucas Brothers special, which I think is called The War on Drugs. Okay. Yeah, you know, it's funny. I, I haven't watched a ton of, of stand-up comedy in, gosh, probably the last 10 years or so. It was a time on cable when it was just omnipresent. Like, every channel late night would have, like, a half-hour, like, comedy compilation. But, like, I, I, stand-up comedy, I've been to, like, maybe two, three shows live in my entire life. And I... I gotta be honest. I, I I didn't really I didn't really enjoy them that much, and I find that even that watching a, even even like a theater stand up, you know, full hour special, um, can kind of lose the immediacy of actually being there in person. And uh, you know, I I I, I liked Chappelle's show okay. Um, I've heard the, the people who know comedy have said that that he's lost a little bit off his fastball as far as his comedy goes, Dave Chappelle. But like. I don't know if you've watched any of his old stand-up before Chappelle show, uh, but he was he was all over cable back in the late '90s and, and early aughts. Yeah, like I said, I've got no attachment to the guy. I don't. I think yeah. this is the first like Dave Chappelle stuff that I've sat down and actually actively watched. Wow. And I mean, he seemed a bit. Um, I don't know. This is me coming from my, uh, you know, my my hashtag cuck lifestyle i guess but i mean like i tend to you know i think it's it's pretty obvious that i tend to to lean left on things and sure. and, and tr- try to lean towards acceptance of things and uh there was a review on letterboxd i saw for this special which uh 
which kind of called out like what, what it seems like he's coming from. Like he seems like he's just like a little bit behind the times and he feels like, well, then what I have to do is uh, plant my flag in the state or, you know, like, oh, sure. Yeah, I yeah. have to just say, well, it's, you know, it's, it's stupid for me to have to keep up with different pronouns. Yuck, yuck, yuck. And then the letterboxd review uh, was basically like guy who likes fight club splooges at that joke like that was i was like yeah that that pretty much seems to wrap this up for me well that's been the that's been the wrap on sort of Chappelle's like fans is that you know he left comedy because his his fans were all white frat boys and you know they were you know taking this again this may not be something i can talk about with a great deal of expertise but you know they were taking his you know very sort of internal sort of you know uh, a black man you know, doing black characters and really, you know, these white fans were kind of minstrelizing it a lot, you know? And I think that it would, that was one of, that was the one big break point for him that said, I got to get out of this industry. It's making me complicit in things I don't want to be complicit in. Now, again, when you start talking about things like how sensitive is he towards LGBT issues or something like that? Um, yeah. You're getting into a whole like different area where he, now all of a sudden he's the guy who can't be sensitive to, to another group's, you know, needs as far as respect and, and, uh, and understanding are concerned. And so it's, yeah. it's really interesting to see him kind of in the middle like that. Um, yeah, it's, it's curious because like, there's a bit towards the, I think it's towards the end of the second special where he's like, now don't get me wrong. Like I'm all for, yeah, uh, uh, you know, gay rights, but here's this joke. And he like makes yeah. a joke about how there's this like lesbian couple at his kid's school He's like, there's the really uptight one who's like a capital L lesbian who takes herself really seriously. And then there's the cool one who I high five and make like lesbian jokes about. And again, like 10 years ago when, oh God, not 10 years ago, more like 14 years ago when Chappelle's show was on, frat boys on college campuses across the country, you know, were doing their Rick James impressions and they probably didn't think that they were being harmful, you know. But at the same time, like it, it, it kind of, it, it, it turned into a, uh, decisive reason why he left comedy and why he left entertainment. Well, the other thing that I've been watching, and I will, uh, I mentioned it last time, but I will come to defend it because I'm really enjoying it uh, very genuinely <laughs> and uh, and honestly, is the fourth season of The Mindy Project, which oh, okay. I'd kind of fallen off with like the second and third season. But with the fourth season, uh, she's getting more into... Uh, it seems like some more like serious conversations. Is it becoming more like more her... like a dramedy, is what I heard. Anyway, it was sort of. Um, I mean, it's 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 always sort of been that, but yeah. it's more willing to look at actual issues that like a modern woman might come into contact with. And mm. I mean, obviously, I need to you know take a step back from that, and you know, I I can't say what the female experience is, <laughs> genuinely being sure, uh, a, you know, being a man, but. Like, for instance, uh, a big part of the first half of the season is her being in conflict with this guy who she's gotten pregnant by, and she's in a relationship with him trying to make it work. He's got really traditional values, and she has to kind of, uh, you know, make these decisions about how she's going to try to balance, like, a work career, a life career, um, and coming into, like, some really, uh, some really intense confrontations with this man about it that you know for the first three seasons we've been you know rooting for them to get together and you know this whole will they won't they thing mm. and now they have and they're having like actual conversations that could actually happen uh that seems to be a pretty people and that seems to be a pretty popular way to go with comedies like catastrophe i think is a lot like that um 
I haven't seen it, but I, I kind of get sort of what the plot line of it is. I, I, you know, I think these lines between comedy and drama are really breaking down in a lot of ways. I, I, even sort of your more serious hour-long shows like Orange is the New Black or even like Transparent, like there's, you know, there's definitely comedy interspersed in there. But um, you're right, like the, the issues seem to take, uh, t- seem to take precedent. Yeah, and the the other interesting thing for me that I'm not sure how I feel about it yet is there's a new character who's been added who I mean her her love interest throughout the last couple of seasons has been this, you know, traditional like Catholic Italian upbringing guy with like strong, you know, family values and mm. and all these sorts of things and he's now been like out conservatived by this uh guy from I think Georgia who comes in and, you know, he's got opinions about, like, a woman's place in the home and things like that. But he's also, like, kind of insanely charming. <laughs> and, and you know, like, the, the, our main character, who, you know, has just finished dealing with this kind of character, is now dealing with a new one, but they're, like, making him kind of folksy. And I'm 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 not sure what they're doing with it, and I'm not sure if they're being responsible with it. Well, that's but... really, that's really interesting, because, you know, Mindy Kaling, like... I I think this is an issue she's returned to again and again during her sort of career, like very early on, um, you know, like what her first big project was and her first big break was uh, it was a play where uh, uh, she and her college friend played Matt Damon and Ben Affleck. And I think she has a kind of fascination for what makes men act stupidly um, or (laughs) crassly or in a sexist manner. I think she kind of like, it's it seems to be a theme that she returns to again and again like she wrote a lot of the bj novak stuff uh on the office and how he used to treat her like complete crap crap i'm forgetting the uh, bj novak's character's name but on the office but like ryan because ryan, ryan started the fire right <laughs> exactly but like this seems to be something that she gives a lot of thought to and um i, I think that I think humor is a great way to kind of deal with stuff like that. But you're right. Like she's now she's got two characters that are kind of conservative and brutish. Well, it's, it's, it's sort of that one is replacing the other, like the one that has been written off the show and not to spoil the decision that she ultimately makes Mm -hmm. about their relationship. But, uh, but it it also seems like where the one guy sort of uh, like got really intense about his family values. This other guy seems to be going down a like reformed conservative sort of path Uh where he's like, well, I know that growing up in my hometown, I would have thought that an Indian woman should never be a doctor, but you've shown me the light, like that sort of thing. Huh. Not that explicitly. <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> yeah, it's it's really setting him up to be like this, uh, this like, oh man, like, you know, if we can just get through to him, so maybe it's supposed to be like a... Right, yeah. Like, like that's, a, that's the sort of path, like if we can find ways to talk to each other, then, you know, we, we can find a way to move forward. I find myself now wading into waters I am completely unqualified to talk about as far as, yeah. like, <laughs> how much of this is societal and how much of this is personal for her. and all. Yeah, it, it's that's, – that's a minefield I wouldn't want to go near. <laughs> yeah. It will drive you crazy to let you know that, you know, she, she makes a joke about how – or I guess they both end up making a joke about how it would be fun to vote for Trump to see what happens because this uh, is the season right before yeah, the election. Yeah, right. You know, um, I just get this feeling you're putting off and putting off room two three seven right now. I yeah, no, this... no, sorry, sorry. It was, uh, it was. I actually had things to say about the. No, show no, I understand. Actually. I haven't I just... had a chance to write about them. Well, as you, as you mentioned, the movie that we're here to talk about this week is from the year two thousand and twelve, from director Rodney Asher, 
we're going to be talking about Room 237. So to introduce the movie as we always do, uh, we're going to talk and we're going to introduce them the way that Netflix does. There are two different descriptions that Netflix offers for Room 237. The first, when you hover over the title, it says, Is Stanley Kubrick's horror masterpiece The Shining filled with coded messages, all of them dark? You decide. <laughs> well, of course they would be dark-coded messages. The movie itself is dark. I, <laughs> what, would the, what would the other option there be? Is Room 237 uh, infused with light, fluffy messages of peace and hope? <laughs> yeah. The, the part that gets me is the you decide at the yeah. end. Like, you know what? No, movie. You do the fucking work for me. It's my job to sit here and watch. Is this like those old 50s, you know, movies where they end with the end and then question mark next to it? You know? Yeah, Jesus. It's not a choose your own adventure book. The movie. Tell me something. Uh, so then when you click on the movie, the description changes to this fascinating documentary explores various theories about hidden meanings in Stanley Kubrick's classic film, The Shining. That is how you explain a movie. That's, That's just, good. It does it. Bam. Uh, the genres that this belongs to, according to Netflix, are documentaries and social and cultural docs. Oh, okay. And the the mood, which I don't know if that's the right word to use, but anyway, the mood that it assigns is cerebral, which I will agree with, <laughs> with maybe adding the question mark to the end. <laughs> was uh, was Beyond the Black Rainbow cerebral as well? That seems to ring a bell for me. I don't know. Oh, uh, it, it could have been. Do you want me to two, check? It's no, it's that. okay. I, I just, you know, hey, two cerebral movies in a row. Now, so here's well, here's the thing, I, right? So, I mean, you are who you are, right? <laughs> well, yeah, of course. Um, I mean, I brought you on board with Beyond the Black Rainbow. I think that that was a movie that our discussion really brought a lot of um, a lot of depths that neither of us had seen. You know, our discussion really kind of sparked a lot of different um, a lot of different theories about the movie and maybe what the secret meanings were. So now I have to ask. What did you think of Room 237? <laughs> oh, I don't like it. Right. <laughs> That's okay. for sure. I think that my opinions on that are, are going to become pretty clear sure. as we go. Um, oh, uh, Beyond the Black Rainbow did not have any moods assigned. Oh, uh, okay. I just, I just checked the notes. Um I mean, before I answer the question, because I think that's going to come up over the course of the conversation. Sure, yes. Um, I always like to ask why we chose this movie. So I, I actually want to answer the question a little bit and then ask you a slightly different question. Okay. So you you sent me a list of movies to choose from. You said I went through, you know, what's on Netflix. Right. And is it on American Netflix, by it the way? It is, yes. yes okay, It, it still is, yep. So you sent me this list, and just my first reaction when I saw this list, I was like, man, like, I really hate Room 237. And then, like immediately, you were like, "Oh well, I could, I could, uh, what, is, what was it? Full throatedly defend that movie." So, yes. I mean, obviously, when that exchange happens, this has to be the movie that we do. <laughs> um, so, I, I, I'm curious, why was it on your list in the first place? Oh boy, well, you know, I first watched this movie. I think I had had insomnia. And I had been meaning to watch this for a long time because I... That I'm, honestly seems like a really good frame of mind with which to <laughs> approach this movie. I, you know, it's funny. Now that I think about it, I, I watched Beyond the Black Rainbow and Room 237 for the first time at exactly the same time of day, like between 4 and 6 a.m. So maybe oh that God. has something to do with it. So, <laughs> but I'm a huge fan of The Shining. I'm a, huge, I'm a huge fan of Stanley Kubrick. So with both of those things in mind, I find out that somebody's finally doing a movie about all these crackpot theories. Now, 
Room 237, the movie, was not the origin of all of these crackpot theories about uh, The Shining. It, it was a way of collecting a lot of the stuff that had been going on online. And a couple of the people who appear in the movie, I'd actually seen those sites linked back in like 2008, 2009, something like that. And so when I heard about the, the concept behind this movie, I'm like, oh, my God, I've got to watch this. So like I said, I had insomnia. I was up at four in the morning one, one day and I just I, you know, I got my phone out and I watched it. And, oh, man, I, it was one of those situations where, like, when I finished, I was like, I have to watch that again real soon. And I think I've probably now watched it maybe five or six times, um, mo- most of the time with other people, because that's the that's the best way to watch this movie um, is to watch it all the way through and then have a great discussion afterwards about it. Uh, so this is my second time watching this movie. The first time I, we put it on for, I think it was like we were like wrapping Christmas presents or something. So it was just kind of like, oh, this seems sort of a neat thing to sure. put on in the background. Um, so when I went to to watch it again, I realized that I hadn't actually finished it last time because we were just we were done with it. Mm-hmm. I had no obligation to finish it. And I think I pointed out to you uh, on on Twitter the impossible rating. That this this movie was assigned on my Netflix profile. Yeah. So first of all, I logged in on uh, on the iPad. Should I say tablet? I don't. We're not sponsored. Fuck them. Um, <laughs> so I, I logged in on the tablet, and it told me that first of all, it still gave me a star rating, which was kind of strange since we've they, you know we've we've evolved into thumbs up and thumbs down now. But uh, it told me that this movie was suggesting that I was going to give it zero point three stars, which. Considering the fact that the lowest rating you can give it is one star, I have no idea how they could conceivably suggest. Like, I literally cannot wrap my head around how well, you multiply, think I would hate this movie so much. If you multiply 0.3 by 42, by four. you get... <laughs> <laughs> okay, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go back and answer your original question, yes. and that's that I don't like this movie very much. Sure. Like the, the basis of what they are doing, I think, is a sound thing to do. And I... I enjoy fan theories. I mean, I've had fun writing some. Like, some of the most fun that I've had in uh, in writing about movies has been to kind of like, okay, well, let's take a silly approach and then go through the movie and argue why that thing is true. Yeah. Like, arguing, like uh, two of my favorite things I've written for, for the Netflix blog uh, are arguing for why Hawkeye is the best Avenger and uh, the one that I sent you, which is why uh, Rocky Four is actually a piece of Russian propaganda. Yes. Because it's it's such a bad American movie that it must be a good <laughs> communist movie. <laughs> yeah, that I mean, you could certainly make arguments on both of those cases. Absolutely. Right. But I also know I'm full of shit when I do it. Okay. Um, <laughs> like I'm, I'm I, when I do those sorts of things, I'm kind of doing them with tongue in cheek. Sure. So, I, but I, I don't have a problem with that format. Like I, I've enjoyed reading some books that kind of do this sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Like uh, you know, different readings of whatever, like the uh, the seven seasons of Buffy and five angel or five seasons of Angel books, uh, right. where different people just get together and they write essays about here's how I read Buffy, here's how I read yeah. this character, that sort of thing. Like that sort of thing is fun for me. Yeah. But it's just, like, the specific theories that they get into, I both ended up leaving with not a full understanding of what they were trying to tell me. Okay, yep. As well as thinking that, like, it didn't hold a whole lot of water. Mm. And just, like, the format of the whole thing I found really frustrating. And, like, 
nothing compelled me to believe anything that anybody was saying except for like a couple little trivial pieces where where I was like, okay, I actually believe that that might be there on purpose or it might actually be worth pursuing this line of thinking to maybe see some maybe see this movie in a different way with some other truth as opposed to I'm sitting here listening to these people follow these crackpot theories but it's not even a documentary about people doing crackpot theories like they really try to like distance the personalities from the theories as much as possible and just kind of present everything on a plate and say like here's this thing without doing anything with them yeah i mean well one of the things that came to me as you were kind of talking about your experience with this movie is that you know a lot of times we we don't go to the theater we don't go to see a movie to 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 see criticism in other words we we go to see either a narrative or a documentary usually right we go to see either a story portrayed for us by actors or some kind of more or less verite um, depiction of the world around us we don't often sit down in front of a movie screen for two hours to hear theories about another piece of fiction. This is a pretty unique film in that regard. There aren't really many movies about uh, film theory. And if they are, they usually are in that form of documentaries, whether about a particular director or they're, uh, you know, about a particular, you know, a pr- uh, you know, artistic approach that directors might take. So this movie's really unique in that sense. I can't think of another film that does what Room 237 does in that it is basically an hour and 50 minutes of five people giving their readings, as you said, of The Shining, you know, or of Kubrick's psychology or anything like that. I can't think of any other examples. And I, I'll, I'll agree with you at that point. Like when I saw that this thing existed, when I first watched it, I was like, this is the coolest thing. I can't wait to check this out. Sure. And it was only during the experience that my opinion changed. Okay, interesting. Yeah, because like, I I knew about it before going in, and I I was even more excited afterwards. Now, I I guess when it comes to the specific theories, we can get into each of them and talk about them a little bit. But I f- I find myself kind of taking a step back and kind of like you're saying that the approach that the that the that the film took in presenting these theories was a little scattershot. In other words, we don't have five segments. Uh, one after the other where all five of these people give their theories over a 20 minute period. They are all mixed up and they're mixed up in such a way that sometimes they do link together really well. There are some commonalities between these five people's theories, which we can talk about. Um, But it's very stream of consciousness, isn't it? And that's only made more acute by the fact that the director, is it Rodney Asher, correct? Uh, that sounds right. Sure. Yeah. Um, <laughs> that he um, uses clips from other movies to illustrate some of the things that people are talking about. And in, in some cases, there are other Kubrick movies, but in a lot of cases, they aren't. And it, it's visually that this film, like you could wrap your Christmas presents while you while you listen to this movie. It could you could just listen to it like a podcast. But when you watch it, it adds such an extra dimension, not the least of which is the fact that so many of the theories have to do with visual space and um, how the Overlook Hotel is laid out and how it's impossible and that kind of thing. But this this is this film, I think one of the reasons why it's so disconcerting is that it really does give you information on two channels. It gives you information on the audio channel, which is each of these theorists speaking their theories into a microphone. And then it gives you all this other information layered over it on the visual side. 
And I think that can be it, it can be a really disconcerting experience because sometimes they don't match up. Sometimes the director is undercutting what the people are saying. Sometimes he's supporting it. It's not it, it, as an experience. It's not unifying sound and vision into one experience. It's kind of making them play off each other in a really interesting way. Right. And that's part of what I found so frustrating about it is that regardless of what they say at the end where I forget who it is. And I, I'm honestly, I'm not going to be able to, I, I do not have it straight in my head who said what, but at the end, somebody kind of makes the argument that like, well, you know, like you can say some stuff is intentional and some stuff's not, but at the end of the day, once it's out there, it's for people to consume yes. how they want and how they see, which sort of the classically postmodern uh, sort of deconstructionist view of a work of art is that the mm-hmm. author's intent doesn't matter. What matters is how it's received. Except the last 90 minutes have been spent with everybody like obsessively insisting that all of this is intentional. And Kubrick put this in here because of this. And Kubrick specifically and, you know, they do this really solid job of arguing for him as this like meticulous genius, which I'm totally fine with. But it's just if you're so aware of the the possibilities of genius and of explaining things and hiding things by doing these visual things, then maybe don't do such a shitty job (laughs) of showing me visuals that match up. What it seemed to me like is that sometimes it was just somebody said the word genie, so let's put footage of the genie in and have it be this like really distracting footage that's making me think about this like what movie what movie is this from like what this is like cuckoo bananas so then i'm I'm taken out of the narrative the visuals are not supporting the theory at all it just Mm. seems like it's like buzzwords that are used to like mash together like and I, i guess you know the the alternative that i'd like to imagine and you know maybe there were technical reasons why this was difficult but like why not do this as like a talking head documentary okay you know why would you not show me the person yeah. a bit more and like sell me a little bit on the personality instead of having it be these these voices that are tied to images that frustratingly also like often repeat with seemingly no effect mm. like yeah. that just it makes for this this difficult experience that I guess at the end of it I was like I could have read this and had the same effect if I had had like a few pictures like this could have easily been like a listicle instead of like a full documentary for me to sit through and I would have gotten the same amount of information and would have felt less angry about it well you know again like I I I totally understand where you're coming from I I experienced a similar thing watching it and 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 not understanding why certain let's say certain non Kubrick films or, or film clips were, were used in certain spots. But I, I do think that it's, if we're going to take a, take, take this on, it's kind of like a meta movie. Like it's a movie about movies. It's a movie about a movie. And we're going to take it as kind of a postmodern text where, you know, everything is kind of determined in relation to something else. Then it totally makes sense to put a cheesy, like Sinbad movie from the sixties in there. Mainly because it it creates a juxtaposition in your mind that does take you out of the moment where the person who's giving their theory and is kind of using the genie as kind of just a very, very threadbare metaphor. It it really it does take you out of what they're saying, Um, maybe in in an attempt to kind of shake you up a little bit to get you out of your comfort zone. So much of what all five of these theorists say about Kubrick throughout this entire film is that. 
the 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 visuals that are used in The Shining, the really disturbing visuals, the the uncanny, the eerie, um, are there for much bigger reasons than just the story of a family falling apart in an isolated hotel in Colorado. And I think that that Asher's decisions to kind of put in like, you know, bits of like uh, Demone and Demone 2, um, you know, these Italian horror movies where people are sitting in a movie theater, like his decisions to do all these things, they're playful, I think, in a very deliberate sense. But I also think they're meant to keep you unnerved because a movie that's this analytical could very well be dry and could very well be so theoretical and obtuse as to kind of not be interesting at all. So I think that these decisions to kind of play with the medium are intentional and are meant to keep the viewer off guard a little bit and keep them. It's kind of like the whole Zen Koan thing where it's meant to kind of shock you out of a way of thinking and into a new track of, of thinking. And I think that, I think that that's a big part of why the, the, the visuals in this film don't always necessarily make sense and match up uh, with what's being talked about. I guess sometimes it's also like it, it seems, I think you already mentioned to subvert what they're like any sort of educational process. Like the sure. one that's jumping to mind is, uh, is Julie Kearns, mm-hmm. the one who's all about uh, talking about space and the, and the maps and everything. Right. Once you start doing that, like for me being a, uh, I don't know, describing yourself as analytical makes you sound like a douche, but I mean, like on personality tests, <laughs> sure. I tend to, you know, end up in that quadrant. <laughs> I, I, I was excited when I saw maps and I was like, okay, yeah, like we're checking along, like, okay, here's the map, here's the map, here's the map. But then they like turned 3D and it started zooming in on them. Yeah. And and like the, the track, like I, it lost value as a map at that point. And it could be, like you said, like, oh, well, sorry, I don't mean to, like, repeat you sarcastically. <laughs> like, no, it could it's be fine. Like a, now it's time to <laughs> unnerve you. But it's also like, okay, but I haven't observed, I haven't taken in the information that you gave me. Yeah. So now everything that you just said is useless to me because I haven't had a chance to process the visual information with the audio that you've just given me. Yeah. Like, like next slide, let's go. Like, I was like, okay, well, Jesus, like, well, fine. Now I have, now I'm mentally, I'm checking out of that theory already because it hasn't been effectively supported for me. That's really, you know, no, that's a really good point. I mean, yeah, you could go to Julie Kearns' site and look at every single one of these maps and look at the incredible amount of detail that she put into them. But you're right. When, when they, when it goes to 3d, you lose all context basically because you're zooming through the words and they they disappear before you have a chance to even focus on them. But again, like what these five theorists are saying about Kubrick is that he does the same thing, that he gives you glimpses of things just out of the corner of the camera's eye that almost hit you subliminally. And I think that Asher's decisions on how to cut this movie are meant as kind of like a meta commentary on that and or even like a, a mimesis of it, like you know, we're going to make this movie, we're going to make this movie structurally to be as confusing and labyrinthine as all of these theorists' ideas are. And I I think that if you take this movie as a gestalt, as a a combined experience of, of, you know, five voiceovers, a bunch of film clips, it doesn't come together in any kind of <laughs> it doesn't come together in any kind of satisfying organized way but i think that for me that's the that's the value in it it's almost as if uh, one of them talks about i think it's the the the, the apollo guy jay widener he talks about how crappy movies in the 60s were until 2001 came along 
and how revolutionary it was. People didn't go to, to see 2001 A Space Odyssey for the plot. They went to go see it for the visuals and for the overall experience. Now, a lot of them were dropping, you know, acid and, you know, <laughs> you, you know, using chemicals to kind of heighten that experience. But the but the but the basic idea was that that Kubrick was taking cinema in a new direction that w- had really almost more to do with like the old silent film sort of vocabulary of montage and like juxtaposition than anything that was narrative. And I think that if there's one movie that they use, a Kubrick movie, I, I think that the most clips you see obviously are from The Shining. But after that, I think it's uh, Eyes Wide Shut and 2001 are the ones you see, the, what, the Kubrick movies you see the most of in this movie. And I think that's intentional. For 2001, it's for the visuals like I just talked about. And for Eyes Wide Shut, that movie's itself got a whole lot of conspiracy theories kind of tied in with it, and it has to do with a conspiracy. So obviously it makes a lot of sense, and it's one of the most, I guess, self-reflective of Kubrick's films. I mean, it would have to be, seeing as it was his last, and he was like kind of looking back at his career at that point. But I think that the, even the choices of film clips that Asher chooses to use in this film are, very, are intentionally meant to get us thinking of those two sides of Kubrick. He's a visual storyteller, and he uses that visual storytelling in a, a very highly symbolic, psychological, and specifically Freudian way. I can see where that's coming from. I guess for for me coming at it from somebody who you know hadn't read these blogs, I haven't seen The Shining in a while, mm. and, and maybe it's a problem of what I was looking for from it. They're like, okay, let's have some fun. Let's look at these theories. <laughs> like if... If that's what you're doing with your documentary about crackpot theories, like it just that strikes me as so. I don't want to call it something pretentious, but like, well, I, th- I mean, like that's there's that's a lot, yeah, that's a lot in there, and I don't necessarily, I I feel like it's already a stretch to give that much credit to Stanley Kubrick in the first place, based on the evidence I've heard. Sure, sure, yeah. I think it's probably even more of a stretch to give that much credit to anybody involved in this movie and i think i i think you're not wrong calling it pretentious i mean i i could you know if you want to put a little more positive spin on it, maybe calculated maybe um well even I, I guess even affected is kind of a negative way but like the, the stylistic choices that asher makes i think are are all really intentional i mean think about how much of a bear this thing must have been to edit room 237 like how many different clips i mean you know you and i edit podcasts and we know it's kind of a pain sometimes but at least there we're dealing with one you know (laughs) stream of data he's got clips from dozens of movies he's got probably hours of talking head um audio and he's got to cut all that together and so every decision in this film must have been very conscious and very concerted and 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 very you know deliberate and i and i think that yes that that does kind of tie in with pretentiousness. But I, I think there's a playfulness here, too. I don't think this movie ever takes itself too, too seriously. I don't think in a way that is sort of like um, insulting to, to the five theorists. I, but I, I do think that it, it recognizes that what we're doing here is actually playing with a text. Like we're, we're cutting it up and rearranging it. And we're looking at only the things that are sort of as, as – these five theorists are our proxies. Like the only, we're only looking at the things that interest them. And that's why it's so interesting when they do cross over, because there, there are some common themes that run through all five of these. See, you see it as playful. I see it as uh, amateurish. So, I mean, your, your reading on it is, is probably right. I mean, this guy's made more movies than I have. That's for sure. (laughs) 
but uh like the two things that really stick out to me as far as like really making the 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 guests like the the speakers the theorists yeah. like really making them look like jokes or the <laughs> one where somebody's talking and then their kid comes in the room kind of like that uh, did you see that viral video oh yeah yeah with the, the, <laughs> that guy doing the interview right <laughs> yeah um but like where the guy's kid comes in the room it's like oh i'm sorry can you hear my kid and like oh let me like scramble to get it and then he comes back and like recovers himself that's and a, i was like who like that's a like me sitting here in like podcast editing mode i'm just like who the fuck edited the <laughs> audio on this like why would you why would you possibly leave that in i because wish like, i could you, remember exactly what they were talking about at that point because i remember when i was watching it i i had forgot i you know watching it for this this recording i had forgotten that that happened and I, I wanted to. I tried to remember exactly what they were talking about at that I'm, point. I'm pretty sure it's when they're when they're first coming into the hotel with all their luggage, and he's talking about like the impossibly large. Oh, pile that's of right. Luggage. Yeah, I mean, it does under it does undercut him. That's um uh Ryan, John Ryan. It does undercut him a little bit because he is being very portentous and sort of very serious about this theory. This is what I mean. Like, you could choose to re re-record that bit but he but but asher didn't choose to do it and i think that's i don't know i i think that's really i think that's really interesting i think that there's a deliberate there's obviously a deliberate choice there and i i I think that probably it is meant to kind of you know it's early on you're right it's like i think it's when ryan is first sort of you know unfolding all of his theories and i i think it is meant to kind of say hey listen you know we realize we're going to be getting into a lot of really really deep um, again, sort of like twisted labyrinthine theorizing here. Don't take it all too seriously. You know, there, there, there's still kids to be fed. <laughs> there's still, you know what I mean? There's still like, right. there, life is out there. The actual real life is, is, is still out there. Yeah. And well, I guess the other one too is, um, <clears throat> I, again, I forget who it was. It might be, it might be Ryan again, who makes a joke at the end about how, like it's the last words of the movie is my life has become the shining followed by his really weird laugh yeah <laughs> which i mean that sounds mean but like again that was a choice to leave it in there yeah. so like your final your final audio choice in terms of dialogue in this movie is somebody kind of being aware and i, I think this ties you know this this supports what you're saying somebody being aware of how seriously they're taking this movie mm-hmm. But then doing this like mad scientist cackle that's not ironic to to themselves. (laughs) There was this movie that came out, I think about 10 years ago. I've been looking for the title and I can't find it, but maybe maybe you remember it. Um, It was about a bunch of really obsessive moviegoers in New York City who would go to see like two or three movies a day every day of their lives. Um, And they all knew each other because they all went to like the same, you know, art house movie theaters and stuff. And you kind of get to meet all of them. I think it's a similar number of people. I think it's like four or five of them. And, um, you know, you, you, you see all of the parts of their lives, warts and all, they're all very eccentric people. They're all very obsessive about seeing as many movies as they can. And, um, you know, they, they, the the documentarian kind of, you know, he definitely treats them with respect, but he doesn't shy away from the fact that, to do something like this is a very, very strange thing. But why else would you make a movie about someone if they weren't, you know, unusual in some way? You know, the choice to kind of spend six months recording and another six months editing and kind of like even a documentary like this, uh, it, it, there's a conscious choice. He could have chosen 
20 other shining theorists on the internet, but he chose these five, you know, why did he cho choose them? All this stuff is deliberate. And I think that you're right. There's a fine line between like giving people a megaphone and being kind of cruel and exposing their eccentricities. But like, I'm the kind of person, you know me, I love weird shit, you know, I love like <laughs> UFOs and the paranormal and stuff like that. And I'm a pretty smart guy. And so people see this in me and they go, that's kind of unusual. And the, the, the people that I listen to and the people that I watch and the books that I read, half of them are by, you know, esteemed academics and the other half are by, you know, very strange people who probably aren't you know dealing in a sort of rational paradigm that people would respect and i i think that and i think we'll get into this when we start getting into these theories and why i find some of them more interesting than others like i i feel like it's very boring to go through life and look at everything on its surface and not look for those patterns that may or may not be there they these may all just be in our heads but like I think one of the things that makes us human is this this really this need to find patterns in the randomness of the universe. And like it can be as something as exalted and sort of historically significant as religion or it can be something as cheap and weird as like a UFO documentary from the 70s. But like there's there's this need that we have to find meaning in stuff that is otherwise meaningless. And I think that picking the shining for the movie to do this to the Shining is full of, like, senseless violence and all of this sublimated rage and, you know, in some cases, you know, like, sexual cruelty and, and like, all these other, like, really horrible things. And I think that, you know, looking, taking a text like this and trying to find something else in it is is meaningful. And I think that that's one of the things that comes out when we talk about Blakemore and, um, and Cox's theories is that you know they're they're saying that that the only way Kubrick could deal with the immensity of the Native American Holocaust and the Jewish Holocaust respectively is to make a movie that was this personal and this much of a you know three people mother father and child. If I can make a I guess a, a comparison um, to to maybe what I, I would have liked this movie to have been more like. Mm. I would have preferred maybe if these five people got in a room together and it was like a round table okay. of them kind of picking apart each other's theories and like having a conversation with each other instead of, um, I, f I forget what the, what public, oh, it was rogerebert.com where you sent yeah. me the, the link where the person, I, I think they, they did a great job of summing up my feelings about the movie where it's just, all of this is just presented on a platter for you to kind of except without any i mean there's obviously curation because like you said these are the theories that have been chosen and presented right. like all, all any any stuff like that is hidden from us um i guess maybe like a bit more of a guiding hand or some kind of response instead of just if i'm sitting there and i'm hearing something somebody say something that i'm just like this seems like bullshit to me like this is setting off my bullshit detector <laughs> and nobody else is joining in on that it's just being treated like well based on the word of this film this is fact well th see or that th this is this is a viable theory yeah. then i'm just i just i just sit there and i'm already grumpy <laughs> well it's funny that you say that because i think that's i think that's amazing i think it's amazing that he doesn't privilege one of these people over the others he lets all five of them i i, I mean we could we could probably total up how much screen time each of them gets but isn't your sort of impression that they almost got like even amount of time each of them i mean I wouldn't know. I haven't done the math, right. but I, like it, it does feels seem, like they did. Yeah, it feels democratic at least. Yeah. Like there, there's no judgment cast on anything, right? 
but, that's the other thing. You make the judgment. This, this, this is. Well, I mean, that's that. That's Netflix description, right? Is you decide. <laughs> I forgot. Yeah, they they got that right. They got that exactly right. Um, yeah, like I think that's really powerful. I think that's really amazing. I mean, how many times in life do you get that? You know, again, like you're right. They he chose these five people. You know, he chose these five sets of theories. He again, if you've gone online and you've looked at people having their own theories about The Shining, like. Even before this movie came out, this was a cottage industry. I mean, Blakemore's paper came out in 1986. I mean, it came out, like, well before the internet. But this is what people do with movies. Like, when we talked about Beyond the Black Rainbow, we came up with, like, feminist interpretations of it. We came up with an ecological interpretation of it and a political one that had to do with Reagan and the Cold War and stuff. Like, it's... It may not be all there. Maybe Panos Cosmatos didn't put every single one of those things in intentionally. But when you're the viewer... I, and maybe that's why Room 237 is so tough for for you to kind of enjoy is because it, it's not letting you do the work. It's putting five sets of work in front of you and then not doing anything with it, maybe. Right. And it's also insisting that it all comes with the authority of Stanley Kubrick behind it. Like the, hmm. the line that made me the most, well, maybe not the most angry, but the one that I felt like <laughs> summed up like the, the core thesis of what is wrong with this movie is the the sentence uh, or the quote Stanley Kubrick is thinking of the implication of everything that exists. Oh yeah. And like that's not that's not conceivable, right? Stanley Kubrick is a great director and <laughs> like he's not god, right? No. Like, that's the pedestal that he's on he's at this not, point. Like they not... literally said he's thinking of the implications of everything yeah. that exists. He, he's not. He's not god, and, but he but within the movie he is. You know what I No, no, I'm saying I'm saying within like within the shining the di- I mean, this is auteur theory. I mean, basically, is like, sure. you know, most movies aren't made by one person. You, you know, all the little things that I mean, they... this movie has a second screenwriter. Like, it's yeah, not even. Yeah. Oh, man. It's based God. off of another. You're right. It's based off of another author's work. You're right. But like. No, I mean, like the screenplay for The Shining. Oh, I see. It's not just by Stanley Kubrick. Yeah. Like, there's a second author even on the screenplay. Yeah. And and there's and there... the fact that they that they you know they say like oh Stanley Kubrick was great and he supported ad living like that does not fit with anything you're saying if... about like everything being meticulously placed in this movie. I mean, right? I mean, you look at something like their the the um, the thing about the 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 dopey sticker on uh, uh, Danny's bedroom door that appears in one cut and doesn't appear in the next, like. Uh, is it Widener that that bases an entire set of theories on that? Like, right, he's no longer a dope. He's been awakened to what's going on. Like, that's very clearly a continuity error. That's very clearly somebody stuck that dopey sticker on later. They shot the one scene before the other, but they were they were edited to be the other way around. Like, it's it's all like the the stuff about the the TV not having a cord and therefore it couldn't possibly be on. I mean. Granted, some of these could be intentional by Kubrick or the set dressers to make things a little more surreal and a little more eerie and a little bit more un, uncanny. But when it, when you get right, like, like the stuff about the map, like could they have made these sets so impossible by accident? And I, I have to think to myself, well, no, but when you set up a shot for a movie, you've got to spend hours setting up shots. Like when Danny's driving his big wheel through the through, through the overlook... Nothing in that is is left to chance. I mean, they probably told the kid to kind of go around and stuff, but that that that, that camera is zooming right along behind him. That had to be set up. So, like, 
it's this interesting thing where you're asked to to think as as a viewer of the movie room 237 you are asked to think about what it takes to make a film and all of the people and all of the things that need to come together actors set decoration direction you know writers as you say like could anything be done by accident could kubrick's subconscious come through in such a way that didn't require him to directly put something in the camera's eye. Like, is it legitimate to suggest that a movie director putting together a movie over months and months and months is actually letting their subconscious drive? Well, if you talk to somebody who's a David Lynch fan, they'll tell you, well, David Lynch is and you know, he comes from the abstract expressionist, you know, tradition. And so he believes that he's channeling his subconscious in these films, even his more sort of narratively focused ones like Blue Velvet. There's, imagery that is straight out of dream logic but is that is that feasible to say that a director could let their subconscious come through in such a way uh on every frame of a movie i don't know yeah and 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 there were a few times where i was like oh that is neat right yes yes (laughs) like like the thing with the tv i was like that's cool and when they you know when they showed like kubrick you know specifically putting you know this this uh, what is it uh this powder like the can yeah 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 you know and and, you know like if if you if you show me something and show me actual proof (laughs) then i can be like oh that's interesting let me follow you down the path a little bit right but it was the combination of just like the the reverence that everybody held kubrick to yeah and then the just like the arrogance with which they pushed their agendas forward and again, not everybody like hashtag not all theories, but <laughs> well, but there was where somewhere I was just like, it got to a point. I think it was maybe about half an hour through. I've I've got like a big angry, just like pen mark right across the page <laughs> where I was like, you know, here be bullshit. Like that's where I was just, I was no longer on board. And the experience of watching the movie turned me off of wanting to take, wanting to listen to anybody. So it was just kind of like, nuggets of neat facts that ended up seeping through right and then everything be uh, most of the experience was me kind of cataloging stuff that made me mad <laughs> it's funny <laughs> it's funny that's I the mean, way you reacted to this though because like frustration i could see um dismissiveness i could see I, but but you've said you've said mad or angry like multiple times we like when we first talked about it like you said when i put it out there and like the other day and now right now as we're recording, like I can't I'm trying to think of the last movie that made me angry. Um, <laughs> you know what movie made me angry when I saw it and I went to go see it in the theater long time ago. Natural Born Killers made me angry and it, okay. it made me angry because I felt like it was like this was this was at the height of like all that Tarantino ultraviolence like and Tarantino actually was one of the screenwriters for that. Right. Uh, natural born killers and, and it just seemed so nihilistic and so purposeless and so cynical that it actually made me angry and maybe that was oliver stone and 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 uh and tarantino's in, intent in some way was to make me angry about the media and how they glorify violence and stuff but like that made me angry like i, I can't think of another film i've seen since then and that was like 20 some odd years ago now that that has made me that i could say i walked out angry Right, and I mean, partially, I'm being cute. Like, sure, I'm, but like, I'm kind of doing a bit. But at the same time, um, though, if we're going to look at the deeper meanings of all the things around us, there's a reason why you're choosing this this terminology to describe how you sure. feel this movie. I did not feel that there was enough meat 
I guess, in what people were saying. Huh. Like the, the the list of things that were just like, oh, come on. Like that was my reaction to a lot of the things. A you lot felt of the it was a stretch. You felt, you felt that their theorizing was too much of a stretch. Yes. And not just a stretch, but like a stretch that's infused with this religious reverence for Kubrick okay. and the confidence that they're the ones who are right. So it's almost like you felt Meanwhile, like they were being too dogmatic in a way. Like they were being, they were like slavishly following Kubrick or what their conception of Kubrick was. Well, yeah, and I also felt like they were being, in some cases, they were being condescending towards me, right? Because huh. they, uh, in some cases when they were introducing their theories, they were like, well, you know, when most people watched it, and I'm, I'm doing, again, I'm doing a bit, sure, like, sure. when most people watched it the first time, they were like, oh, this scary movie. But then, you know, the real thinkers came in and started paying close attention. And I was just like, dude, like, you know what? Um, that, that's... And, and like, I and I agree with what they are saying, but you have to not be a dick about it to get people <laughs> to listen to you. Well, let's take a look at the theorists now, because I think that, that, that that's a great segue, because basically what you have here is you have you have Blakemore and Cox, who I can kind of put together because. Blakemore is the one who believes it's about the systematic the elimination of, of the, the yeah. of the Native American population of North America. And Cox believes that it's a Holocaust parable. And I don't think, coincidentally, these are the two academics in the group. So as I said before, Blakemore, I think he was a journalist. He was over in Europe uh, when he saw the movie the first time. And he actually wrote a paper about it, an academic review of the film, um, saying, you know, here's the Calumet can – um, here's the explicit calling out of it being on Indian burial ground, et cetera, et cetera. And then Cox obviously says, well, Kubrick was a Jewish American. He grew up watching newsreels of World War II. He put the Adler typewriter in there, which is, you know, German for Eagle, and it's a very Germanic-looking typewriter, and it's, you know, it's it's meant to be the machinery of the Holocaust. So these two basically wrote their theories in very sort of like, you know, academic language, right? Th- these are like... These are like their film studies interpretations of the film. And I think these are the two strongest um, interpretations, but they're also, for me, the two least interesting because they are kind of obvious. Now, the the Freudian side of things, when Cox talks about um, uh, the uses of enchantment by Bruno Bettelheim, like that's interesting because there's a lot of fairy tale imagery in The Shining. There's I mean, that's that's par for the course for King, obviously, for Stephen King. But like you know, Big Bad Wolf and Hansel and Gretel and all that stuff. And so, like, yeah, this movie's a warning, you know, not to trust fathers, you know, not to trust the Big Bad Wolf. And 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 sort of, like, that stuff's fine. But then you get to Kern. Sorry, who was the one who is, who got into the, the Freudian stuff? Um, that was uh, Jeffrey Cox, who... Okay, because um, it, 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 may, it may just be that I call out my uh, my big fucking stretches. Like, I, 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 <laughs> I don't know if I actually said this out loud, but, like, I have a section of my notes here that says some really big fucking stretches. Which was? Um, um, so the the one that I'm thinking of, this is actually the top of the list, is the, uh, the thing with the paper tray. The thing with the paper um, tray. Where the, the manager of the hotel oh, gets right, up right. and he goes to walk around the desk <laughs> and and this is one of those this is one of those like arrogant moments right where I think that was the, actually whoever... Widener cuz he talks about sexual oh, okay. imagery in subliminals and stuff yeah oh, okay sorry so I I mean I'll I'll drop this now since no, I started talking about it but where he comes where he talks about the manager coming around the desk yeah. and like right at the very second where he says you know this keyword you'll notice that he has this paper tray right at his crotch yeah. so he's got this paper tray hard on but don't worry not all the subliminal stuff is jokes i'm like that's like it's 
Like let, let's like let let's let's Occam razors or Occam's razors. No, no, I, like, I, fine. Like we get that. <laughs> we get that. Okay, yes. There's this meticulous set dressing, and Stanley Kubrick paid a lot of attention to what was going yeah. on. If you're having a scene where a guy comes around a desk to shake a guy's hand, what are the chances that something on that desk is eventually going to line up with this cop? I, I want to talk. <laughs> pretty good. I want to talk about Wider, but I want to leave him for last because he's the one. Okay, he's yes. the one we need to leave for last. So. Okay, so Blakemore okay. and Cox, they're, they're the academics. So Kearns and Ryan, I call them the internet theorists. They both put their sets of theories online, and that's how they became kind of popularized. And so, you know, Julie Kearns did the huge maps that you talked about, and, and uh, Ryan is the one who has the theory about running it backwards and forwards at the same time and seeing uh, correspondences and stuff like that. So the, these shade more into the crackpotty sort of realm. Um, they're very personal interpretations. They they have a lot of um, apophenia to them, which is this tendency to find patterns and things that aren't there. But both of them, very interestingly, look at the overlook as being physically impossible and really stick to that. And so what I think with them is that they both tried to find a uh, like a map that would either literally or figuratively a map that would tell them how to navigate the overlook. In other words, like. They were so like put out by the impossibility of the geography and the psychological sort of geography of, of the Shining Hotel that they had to find new ways to explain exactly what was going on in the movie. And I think that's also a legitimate way to react to a film as uncanny as The Shining is. I, on the surface, there's a lot of fun to be had with those, and that's where some of the most, um, like like you said, the uh, you know the the Holocaust and the the Native American genocide, you know, you describe them as being the more obvious ones. These internet theorists are probably having a bit more fun or they're becoming fixated on something and just following the rabbit hole until they come to a conclusion that they're satisfied with. I, I don't, and, by uh, the way, I didn't see the Minotaur. I don't know where she is seeing that in that skier poster. I can't. Oh my God. Okay. Okay. So yeah, <laughs> <laughs> that was another, no, let's go back to the list. So the, that's not a skier. It's a Minotaur. I think I sent you the, uh, the meme that I yeah. made of the, uh, of Giorgio Tsoukalos. Yes. <laughs> You know, basically, like, room 237 in a nutshell is, you know, the aliens guy, except it says minotaurs. Like, the part that made me so upset with that is when she says the suggestion of a ski pole. And I was like, you mean the ski ski pole? pole? (laughs) Like, there's no suggestion. You're showing me, like, the the footage of the movie was showing me the poster, and there are clearly ski poles. So the photo of this skier, this poster, like, he or she is lit from behind, and... Um, it's causing like lens flare and it's causing the figure to kind of like warp out. And now it's in the background of a film. So it's already blurry. So this is, this is, again, this is pure apophenia. She's, she's seeing a pattern that her brain has put together. Not your brain, not my brain, (laughs) but Julie Kearns's brain. And of course, it's very obvious to look for a um, minotaur symbol in a movie with such a prominent, you know, maze in it, a prominent labyrinth. Like that's, you know, that's maybe trying to fit the pieces in after the fact. You know what I mean? Like, d- doesn't she also claim that the Minotaur poster was like the inception point for her theory, though? Well, it was because like, it's it, it. She claims that it comes so early that just like, oh yeah, my whole theory came together because I saw the Minotaur poster. <sighs> no, it didn't. You're lying to me, or you're lying to yourself. Yeah, I. I mean, this is the thing. Like, I get the feeling any of these people. I think even Blakemore actually says it out loud. Like, they came up with their theories the second time they saw this movie. Like, the first time through, 
nobody is going to have that kind of interpretation. Like nobody's going to do the numerology on how many miles it is to the moon. And then like, you know, have that knowledge on hand the first time they watch the movie. It's not going to happen. Okay. So that brings us to Jay Widener. So Jay Widener is the guy he's kind of all over the place. And if you, I don't know if you checked out his website, but he's fully into like media conspiracies and like his site is basically just conspiracy theory central. Like he's not even on, he's not on the map. He's like well off uh, in left field. And I think I like him the best for that reason. (laughs) But at the same time, like he starts off by talking about the sexual subliminals from uh, the Wilson Bryan key book about how people in the sixties were beginning to realize that they were putting all kinds of like, you know, sexually suggestive uh, subliminal imagery in advertising. I find here on the Wilson Brian Key um, uh, Wikipedia page very interesting. He taught journalism for a short time at the University of Western Ontario in London, Ontario. So uh, he was also a colleague of Marshall McLuhan, who was, whose theories were obviously huge back in the 60s. And so Jay Widener is kind of like a man of his time. Like he's the one who talks about how kind of disappointing movies in the 60s were before 2001 came out. But he's also the one who has the moon landing theory, which is the one I think everybody remembers from this movie, which is that The Shining is a coded confession of the psychological torment that Stanley Kubrick had over faking the moon landing. Even though Widener says, I don't really think he faked the moon landing. Which makes you wonder, well, why are you telling me this theory in the first place? So Widener is kind of like simultaneously the most interesting and the most frustrating of all five of these people. I think that's the least frustrating thing about wow. <laughs> about what he says. Because I, I get it. And I mean, he, he talks, I mean, he introduces the theory in a sound kind of way where he says, listen, all that footage that you've seen is war propaganda. Like, those aren't actual soldiers. That's That's presented footage. And you're like, oh, okay, well, that's interesting. Hmm. And then he's like, and that's why they faked the moon landing. And I can prove it with rear rejection. And that's when I, again, just like wash my hands of the situation. (laughs) Much like Pontius Pilate, the actor uh, who played um, (laughs) the assistant to Ullman. You mean the white guy who he describes as having brown skin? Well, I mean, that guy. Yeah, he he definitely, listen, a lot of the things that they, but wasn't that interesting how everybody kind of like zoomed in on this guy, Watson, Ullman's, like, assistant and said that guy's gotta mean something because he didn't do anything (laughs) it's like that simpsons thing where the yakuza are fighting the mafia and homer's like that quiet guy over there he's gonna do something really cool and i'm gonna miss it (laughs) (laughs) but i mean that's that's the thing like when 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 something is a void when something is uh when something offers no meaning up front the human mind tries to find a meaning to fit into it and if, if The Shining is just this giant Rorschach test, obviously five different people are going to have five different interpretations of it. And a couple of them are going to have different interpretations of this Watson guy who's kind of quiet and kind of diffident. Uh, it, it's, it's interesting. The things that people really focused on in common are the geography of the hotel, Watson and Ullman, and kind of how uncanny that whole set of scenes is. And the, obviously the family relationships and whether Danny's like, so here's the thing, like this movie doesn't cover every single shining interpretation out there. There's tons more. I mean, there's a little hint of the, of the theory that this movie is really just all about Jack abusing Danny. And um, there's a little bit of a hint of the occult sort of significance. The other thing you should know about Jay Widener, by the way, he's a, he's a scholar of alchemy. 
Um, so along with his other conspiracy theories about the moon landings and Mars, um, he's also a, a scholar of the occult as well. So that's where you know Widener is coming from when he gives you his moon landing theory. Um, but um, there's a very common uh, theory online about, you know, how um, Jack is posed in the photo at the end at the July 4th, 1921 ball. His arm positions echo the Baphomet figure in the tarot deck of the devil. Okay. And that's something that people will put side by side and say, oh, wow, there might be something there. So there's there, there's so much more out there than just these five theorists. But the reason why The Shining is such an endlessly interpretable text is because of the fact that it's so uncanny and it's so weird and it's so, you know, on the surface, like when Julie Kern says, this was just a cheesy horror movie when you see all these skeletons and cobwebs, but then she goes into the red room and I had to agree with her. I had to say, yeah, like Kubrick was able to change sort of like gears from cheesy horror movie with skeletons to you know something that would wouldn't look out of place on on a David Lynch film or or a David Cronenberg movie. Yeah, and I don't have a problem with just like the the basis of the movie and I think that uh you know The Shining is worthy of that kind of interpretation. I guess it's just you know like maybe a sequel with different people might elicit a different reaction with like a slightly different formatting choices. You're right, though. All but, five uh, of them, but, but all, because, all... because I think I think that you're right that you know the the fact that you, there are people who are coming back to these same things, like there's something there. It's just also that, like, just because you see a neat thing, it could be an isolated choice, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like sometimes, it, like the like the thing with the tarot deck. Like, okay, if Jack does something, was it? The devil yeah, was that yeah. what it was, and uh, I know nothing about tarot, so I apologize to anybody who I, <laughs> who I might offend. But you know, maybe that's okay. Well, I saw an image of the devil. Jack is evil, so let's put him in this pose. And things can be isolated. Yeah, you know, you're right. Like when when you see someone making a very very intentional stretch, or something that seems to you to be a, a very dubious connection, a lot of times the conscious mind can't explain how we get from one association to the next. I mean, this isn't just the pattern finding stuff. This is the, I go from point A to point B and don't visit any of the points in between. But the, but the subconscious can make connections that, that the conscious mind can't understand. And, um, and that's especially true when it comes to symbolism and stuff that doesn't happen kind of on the, on that analytical conscious level in the brain. And I, I, I think that, when it comes to sort of like literary analysis and like literary criticism, whatever sort of literature you're talking about, whether it's film, TV, or, you know, more traditional like books, a lot of those connections, I mean, listen, I've written countless like literary analyses in my academic career. Like I know that the way most people look at literary criticism is that it is bullshit and that it says more about the person who's doing the critiquing than the text itself. But I mean, but that's the value of it, isn't it? Like that's the value of anything having to do with like, you know, analyzing art is that art is not just the mirror held up to nature. It's the mirror held up to each of us. And so Mm -hmm. you and I look at a painting and we're going to see two completely different things in that painting that interest us and whether it's technical or whether it's symbolic, you know, there's going to be, it's going to be a gem that has multiple facets and we're each looking at it at a different direction. Um, and, and, you know, again, like it, it's, uh, I, I think that 
after finding out a little bit more about each of these talking heads and, and theorists in this film, you know, I think that that finding out about each of them has changed the way I feel about their theories, which I think, again, makes it absolutely paramount that Asher doesn't use any visuals of these people in this movie. Their voices tell you something and their stories about themselves tell you something. But I think it's tremendously important that we don't find ourselves as viewers of Room 237 confronted with the fact that Jay Widener's kind of a crackpot online and that Blake Moore and Cox have been published, you know, by, you know, actual academic journals. Like it it definitely, like I said, like you said earlier, it's very much more democratic and it levels them and it kind of keeps them all on the same level footing. Yeah. And I, I get that if you had people's faces, then you... You know, people are already going to be making judgments, yeah. right? Like if, uh, let me pick a name out of a hat. Like if John Fell Ryan turns out to be like just like a smoke show, just like a really good looking dude, like super charismatic. <laughs> but if that seems to be the case, like I remember, uh, what was that movie that I watched recently? It was a documentary. I'll I'll link to it um, when I figure it out. Actually, I'll, I'll you've probably already heard it because I've added the correction and the in the introduction. But it was this movie about these two scientists who are working on. Uh, trying to create eternal life okay um and they're approaching it from like a from a scientific method uh and taking two different approaches and the one guy looks like uh like alan moore (laughs) and he's got like like he's got like just shit teeth this big bushy beard and i've already made up my mind about him when i see right so I, i guess that if you don't have these people in a room then you're letting the theory stand on their own right um I guess I, I, I take some, some umbrage with what they chose to fill that visual space with instead. The other thing that from, from listening to you talk, uh, which I guess at the very least you are making me think about this a bit differently, is I'm fascinated to know, not even to know, but just like to speculate or even just to think in my own head about how much of these theories is uh, born out of uh, like trajectory that you know these people just kind of you know became known for this one thing and like how much they genuinely believe it <laughs> as opposed to how much they're kind of like well this is my pet theory so i'm gonna look for it and i'm gonna keep finding it and even if i know in like my heart of hearts that i'm stretching like it kind of supports it so i have to include it well that's probably yeah that's one of the more interesting things to contemplate is you know when you create a a critical framework for a work of art you, you know some sometimes everything fits in effortless, effortlessly and you don't have a lot of like contradictory information and it just fits perfectly and sometimes you have to hammer those edges into shape to make it fit you <laughs> and i you know honestly I understand why you would be wary about somebody who does do that hammering. But to me, again, I think analyzing why and how they're doing that hammering is just as interesting as somebody with a beautiful theory that fits in every single possible way. Because, yeah. like, Kubrick was an odd dude, you know. He he was a very much perfectionist. Um, the actors who have worked with him have said that he was, you know, obsessive, sometimes abusive. To him, that hammering is basically how he got his films to be such incredible works of art. And again, you know, you may not, an individual may not like Kubrick and they might not like, like individual Kubrick films, but I think, I think generally speaking, the, the canon of film is going to put Kubrick very, very high, you know, on that list. And I think that these, these theorists are kind of doing the same thing, which is when their theories don't quite fit, they're, they're kind of creating, 
I guess like psychic static about it. And they're sort of like, you can, you can tell, I think Ryan does this a lot where he kind of like, he equivocates quite a bit, you know? And like, he'll say, Oh, this kind of looks like a giant kind of sweeping up the, the mountains. Like he's, he's not, he's not quite convinced. Like there's only a few areas where he's really, really solid, like the running the film backwards and forwards. But see, to me, that was one of the weakest theories because if you've watched any of those like uh, YouTube compilations of like Kubrick um, clips, they show you exactly how he uses depth of field and the center of the film um, frame uh, to focus information. And so, of course, all the interesting stuff is going to happen near the center of the film frame because that's exactly how Kubrick does a movie. So to me, like when, when Ryan kind of like, you know, solidly hits on all of these little correspondences that happen when you run the movie backwards and forwards. And all I could think of again was, um, Dark Side of the Moon, you know, uh, with Wizard of right, Oz, yeah. you know, people are going to find patterns. And and when they don't find the ones that fit right, they're going to they're going to have to tweak them into shape a little bit. But I think that's interesting. What's frustrating. Sorry. No, that's, that's what I was going to say is I think that's interesting in and of itself. Yeah. In his case, he wasn't really finding theories, though. He was just like it was a slideshow of neat coincidences. Yes, exactly. Which I mean, present that as such and fine. Neat. <laughs> right. <laughs> Um, I, I guess aside from theories being hammered, I think it's also interesting to consider how much of this is just uh, uh, well-practiced brain muscles. Oh, sure. Uh, firing unnecessarily. Yeah. yeah. Right. Like I see sometimes, and uh, I want to be careful to not cast judgment, um, because I, you know, I've even done it myself, where I, you know, I've, I've mentioned I try to be, um. You know, I, I I try to be accepting of things, and I try to be open-minded mm-hmm. and, and whatnot. And sometimes I'll catch myself saying something where I realize that all I'm doing is I'm like signaling to, you know, my my liberal friends that like, hey, look, I've you know, give me points. Yeah. Um, and I I wonder how much of that is just kind of like, well, I'm, I I just this is what I do. I find theories, and so ba ba ba, and then this is my theory now, and yep, and wrap it up in a nice little. Book. So I think I think what you're saying is like how much of each of these five sitting down for for Asher's microphone, how much of it is performative, and how much of it is authentic, and I I think that that's one of those things you can only speculate on. But you know, my feeling is anybody who's spent the amount of time that these five people have spent has to have at least a little bit of even still of authentic feeling for this theory. And and I think you're actually bringing me around to the idea of having these five people sit down at a round table, maybe as like a bonus feature or something like that, because, and who knows, maybe there's a bonus feature on the DVD. That's exactly this, but like to see them bounce off each other would be, I mean, it would be fascinating. You'd be a little worried about some of them, maybe like taking offense to something. <laughs> but but seriously, like this is one of those things, like if you've got five people giving their feedback, you're going to get a sort of like better, well-rounded picture of a piece of art than just one person working on their own. And so the areas where they do overlap, again, things like the, the uncanniness of, um, of uh, Ullman's assistant and like, you know, the, the, the weird and eerie sort of space of the overlook. Like when, when I think back to how I watched the shining before I watched room 237, it wasn't all of the like little smash cuts and like little smash edits of, you know, horrible things happening. Um, it was the quiet moments. I mean, the shining is full, full. I mean, and you see it in, in room 237, 
The Shining is full of like a lot of like lead up, like very, very, very deliberate, slow kind of like it, it reminds me of Beyond the Black Rainbow in that sense is that there's like this almost tone poem sort of mood to it. And I think in those gaps, in those wide sort of narrative and spatial gaps, you can write so much as a as a person who's watching it, as a viewer and as a critic. Like, it invites you to fill in the blanks. And I think that's one of the reasons why you would have to choose this movie instead of some other movie that doesn't have that kind of area for interpretation. Let me let me ask you this, just to kind of uh, I know that you 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 know you came in with the uh, with the goal of winning me over <laughs> a little bit. I believe you you stated as much that you know that the shining theorists are are looking to their champion. Um, They're very much my kindred is... spirits, I think. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I guess. What do you have any favorite stretches? Like any moments that you're just kind of like, oh man, like I'm a little embarrassed right now that like, <laughs> I'm I'm like rah rah for this movie. Or I don't know if you're friends with any of these. No, movies, I'm so not. I don't want to put you on the spot. I was really surprised to find out that Jay Widener was such a. Um, was, was so involved in so many different conspiracy theories. And I got to be honest, like I'm always very dubious about numerology. There's this great bit in the Umberto Eco novel, Foucault's Pendulum, where the, the, the Kabbalist of the three protagonists is like talking to the, the count who's kind of like a, an esotericist. And they get into this back and forth about like numerology, but basically later on in the novel, it's revealed, well, you can make any number out of any other number if you multiply it by the right, you know, factor and stuff like that. Yeah. And I, I think that's kind of like the one of the, the, the 237,000 miles to the moon thing, like part of me just goes, wow, that's amazing. But then the other part of me is like, that's just such an obvious coincidence that, I mean, yes, they changed the name of the room from t- the number of the room from 217 to 237. And the reason why they did it isn't the reason that they said According to the movie, right? <laughs> According to the one That's theorist, a... like I mean, he's like, if you call the hospital, like that could be a, you know, that could be a like a almost a, a Trump moment, right? Like, oh yeah, call, call the yeah. president of China. He loves me, right? <laughs> this entire movie is fake news. Um... <laughs> <laughs> it is, <laughs> but um, right. but yeah, like a numerology always makes me really, really dubious. But I do have to confess. I started looking for forty twos in this movie, and I found one that they didn't even notice, which is. The photos at the end that are hanging on the wall, remember when they do the reverse and they they have the the movie playing against itself in in reverse, you see that there's three rows of seven, which is 21. 21 times two is 42. Mm. So there was a 42. (laughs) But you had to do your own math. Well, I told you, you have to put your own factors in with numerology. It's just one of those things you have to do. The part with the numerology that kind of made me chuckle um, was the insistence on it being pervasive and then the inability to list many examples. There's a, there's a license plate. There's his, uh, there's Danny's shirt for 42s and there's the two times three times seven, which is 42. Then there's the number of cars in the parking lot. As long as you ignore like the truck in the snow. Yeah. (laughs) It's 44 minus two, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Um, (laughs) The other theory that, again, gets hinted at by a couple of these people but doesn't really get fully explored and one that I've seen online a lot is the is the idea that, that there is an abusive relationship between Jack and, and Danny and, and that it's not just the fact that Jack threw him down the stairs or whatever, that there's a sexually abusive relationship. And that kind of um, finds its fruition in uh, the famous um, freeze frame – or not freeze frame, the famous cut – 
of uh, the guy in 1920s tuxedo and the guy in the bear suit, uh, which is one of the more sort of like memorably uncanny moments as uh, I think it's yeah. when Shelley Duvall's kind of running through the hotel. I think it's a dog. It, it, yeah, it's it's some kind of, yeah, it's some kind of furry mascot kind of outfit. And th- there's, if you can, you can go online and check this out, but there's, there's theories about like I guess Danny's like imaginary friend and his teddy bear and stuff like that. So it's it's just a whole like it's a whole thing that you can check out. But that's the other really common one that's out there. There's a lot of symbolism that's meant to uh, evoke that there's a that there is a you know sexually abusive relationship uh, between Jack Torrance and his son. Um, and so like that's that's one that I think that again like there's little hints of it in some of these and. Again, the Freudian interpretation that's happening with um, Jeffrey Cox, but like Widener talks about it, Julie Kearns talks about it a little bit. Um, you know, again, like it's like what I was talking about before with the uh, with the Holocaust and Native American extermination. Like the idea that 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 a tragedy that happens on a small level um, is much more emotionally immediate than one that happens on an inconceivably large level. I think is actually a really interesting and very thought-provoking thing to think about how do you get across you know what evil people can do to each other well you've got to make it as visceral and personal as possible which is another you know sort of aesthetic and artistic argument we could have all night probably but um Mm -hmm. it's definitely an interesting one for this movie i think sure uh do you mind if i raffle off a couple yeah go right ahead (laughs) yeah absolutely chance to uh uh so one the idea of the uh the fade uh so you'll have to help me. The know, dissolves. Uh, the sub- subliminal. Yeah. So with with all the dissolves. Yeah. Um, so with Kubrick himself being in the clouds, stared at that, paused it, couldn't see it for no, the I could me. Maybe it's like a magic eye yeah. thing, and like my wonky eye doesn't let me <laughs> get, let me see it. No, I couldn't. I couldn't but, see it yeah, either. That just. It was like the the director tried to help us, man. <laughs> like he paused it for <laughs> us. Like it was. That's just not there. Um. There was one that I felt was kind of like, for me, it seemed like a stretch. It was more the way that it it verbally was spoken. Um, And maybe this is me not being well informed and missing a reference. Uh, So I was hoping that you might be able to actually help out with this. So there's one point when Cox is talking about a dissolve. I think it's Cox, uh, considering it's about the Holocaust, where he talks about how um, there's this big pile of luggage and then it fades or it dissolves, and all of a sudden that pile of luggage is replaced with tourists, which of course evokes the Holocaust. And I was like, I think you're being a little liberal with your use of the phrase of course right now. Yeah, yeah. I mean, again, if he goes into this film and looks for things that are going to remind him of, you know, again, all of the kind of the, the common cultural symbology of what we consider the Holocaust as far as like, you know, uh, being put on trains and being separated from your luggage and, and, and all of these kind of, uh, you know, Schindler's list is, is expressly kind of called out as one of those, you know, cultural touchstones at this point. Um, you're going to find correspondences like that if you're looking at, it, at at a film through that kind of lens. And so I don't necessarily think that there's any reason to believe that the luggage itself and its dissolve into people is, is any kind of express, you know, reference to the, to the Holocaust and the dislocation of Jewish people in in that in Nazi Germany, but like again, if you're coming at it with that kind of lens in front of you, you you will end up seeing correspondences like that. I mean, I honestly, f- yeah, there's a lot of confirmation. It is, yeah. I mean, for sure. I mean, I honestly find things like the elevator doors, um, 
even even the typewriter, I, I find these a lot more compelling on that front. There's there's other moments where I think you know Cox, if he was going to take the the, the Holocaust metaphor further, he could probably have have worked with. But you know, again, like when you get right down to it, I mean, like movements like fascism, they're they're patriarchal, you know, and this is a family that's being driven insane by their insane father. So on a certain level, they are very, very, you know, similar, but it's not necessarily because Kubrick grew up Jewish in the forties. You know what I mean? It, mm-hmm. it, 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 there are correspondences there that are independent of, of the historical moment and are more having to do with, you know, the yeah. evil that men do essentially. Yeah. Yeah. I think that those, those two theories are the ones that didn't get enough time. Mm. Like I would probably like you, you mentioned that, you know, the, uh, some of these are, are written in papers or, or on blogs, like in more detail. Yeah. So I, I'd be curious to actually check those out. Um, my favorite one, uh, just because of the, again, it was, it was me being able to kind of take a pot shot in somebody's arrogance. The whole idea of, uh, Room in capital letters, number with the oh, lowercase o, two thirty seven, uh, and that you know you can rearrange those letters to spell moon. And he actually says the only word that you could spell other than room with those letters is moon. Um, yeah. Obliviously and hilariously missing the word moron, which I thought was, <laughs> was pretty amazing. <laughs> That's great! Oh my god. Boy, I tell you, that's the kind of comeback you wish you had right away for someone doing something like that. <laughs> that's the kind of thing that would come to me like six years later after I talked to somebody like, oh, man, I could have called him a moron. But you're right. Yeah. That is the other word that you can make <laughs> out of that. No, I mean, right. Widener's definitely the weak link in this whole thing, even though the Apollo theory is probably the most the coolest and most interesting. He he's the he's the one who kind of goes the furthest without any kind of backup, I think. Yeah, like I'm almost compelled by it, and his actual—it's his personality yes. that turns yes. me off of the theory. Yes. Just the the confidence that, like, <laughs> I know that I have proven with beyond a shadow of a yeah. doubt that the moon landing was see, done with rear projection. See, Dylan, I can tell you don't spend a lot of time in the world of conspiracy theorists and ancient aliens people, and because man, th- this is this is pretty pedestrian stuff as far as that world is concerned. Uh, is uh, you know as far as his theorizing goes. Yeah, it's just, it, I mean, it's the its the tone of the movie, is the confidence that I have successfully proven something while, well, just, just it's taking the credit without doing the work yeah. in most cases. Yeah. All right, so, Mike, we want to wrap this up the same way that we always do, and that is by assigning this movie a rating. And normally we would do an MVP, but instead we're going to do an MVT, so a Most Valuable Theory. Okay. So uh, how I want you to wrap this up is we're, uh, we're retiring the five-star rating since Netflix yeah. did. So I just need to know whether this movie gets a thumbs up or a thumbs down on your profile, as well as if you can uh, shed some light on what your what your favorite theory is or maybe which one you, I mean, you can take this however you want, either <laughs> which one you buy the most into or the one that you had the most fun yeah. with or just enjoyed being exposed to. Well, I give this, uh, I give Room 237 an enthusiastic thumbs up even still, even after my fifth or sixth viewing of it. Um, and my MVT, I think is going to have to be, it's going to have to be Jeffrey Cox. Um, as I said, as we were just talking about sort of the, the Holocaust imagery as being, in some cases, a little bit of a stretch. But I think for me, his tying in of, um, again, psychology, fairy tales, um, you know, uh, his very postmodern look at sort of meanings being there, even if the author's intent isn't there. Um, his theories were the most compelling. 
And uh, I think just for for thoroughness, I'm going to give Julie Kearns a a sort of honorable mention. If you do go to her site, those maps are amazing, and they do prove that the Overlook is a uh, impossible House of Leaves-esque labyrinth, and uh, you should definitely check it out. Uh, My rating is a uh, slightly less enthusiastic, but still present thumbs down. Okay. Yeah, I I mean, I feel like this kind of thing can be done better. Mm. It's not... It's not the idea of room 237 that I that I take that I have an objection to. It's just I got next to nothing from it and spent more time frustrated with what was being presented to me than taking anything away from it. <laughs> um, and if that was, uh, you know, intentional for artistic sake, then hey, maybe it just went over my head and I'm a big dumb dummy. But <laughs> You know, I'm not going to endorse something if that's if that's the reaction that I have to yeah. it. Um, I, I would love to see more movies like this okay. and, you know, uh, see a greater interest in film theory and people, you know, scratching underneath the surface. I mean, like I host a podcast where we have conversations <laughs> to talk about these sorts of things. Like I would be interested in having individual or listening to individual conversations with yeah. these people and you know being able to give it the the one on one time that each theory either does or doesn't deserve it's just this did not feel like the way to have these conversations <laughs> um either in how they were presented or or in just in in the opportunities that they were given um as for my favorite theory i think i'm going to i'm going to echo what you said i think that uh cox and i mean and blakemore yeah. uh they at least made me interested in reading more and finding out more about what was uh what was actually going on there seeing what else they have to say about it although the like like i mentioned the uh you know widener's apollo 11 stuff in you know <laughs> maybe in more of a personality vacuum i could have been more drawn in by but but ultimately ended up just uh just washing my hands of by the yeah. end yeah yeah so thanks so much for doing this, Mike. Um, I want to leave the leave the the mic open for a moment so you can tell everybody about uh, a little bit about who you are and what your projects sure. are and where people can find oh, you. Oh, thanks. I appreciate that. Um, you can find me on Twitter at Museum Michael. That's all one word. Um, I am the contributing editor at a site called We Are the Mutants. It's an online magazine about the lost and forgotten uh, pop culture and and. Uh, and uh, technology and science of the Cold War era. Uh, you can find us at wearethemutants.com and on Twitter at wearethemutants. And my podcast with uh, former Netflix guest Rob McDougal will be coming back sometime this summer. It's our podcast looking at the uh, 1980s, uh, 1970s and 80s sitcom WKRP in Cincinnati uh, through a historical lens, and it's called Hold My Order, Terrible Dresser. And you can find us online at HoldMyOrderTerribleDresser.com and on Twitter at HoldMyOrderWKRP. Well, thank you again so much for doing this. Uh, it's been it's been a lot of fun. I've I, as much as much of a grump as I've been <laughs> <laughs> complaining about this. I've been looking forward to this conversation. I'm glad to hear that it lived up. What was it like to to not be the the grumpy guy? Kind oh, of I know. I, I I'm it, it hurts. I I have to go rest now. It was <laughs> too much work. I, I I can't be the curmudgeon. I had to be the excitable. Uh, a uh, positive person for once, but no, it, it it's great. I, 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 it's like beyond the black rainbow. I really like, I like sharing these kind of like, you know, out of left field films with people. And uh, this, this lived up to expectations. Thanks so much, Dylan.
That's going to be everything from this episode of the Netflix podcast. If you liked what you heard today, head on over to netflixblog.wordpress.com to check out the rest of the Netflix content, like show notes, articles, lists, and reviews. The show notes for today's episode are pretty extensive. It's going to offer links off to pretty much everything that we talked about today. Uh, So, for instance, as far as Netflix content goes, uh, there's a link to the pet theory that Hawkeye is the best Avenger, the theory that Rocky IV is actually Russian propaganda, as well as our review of the movie The Immortalists, which you've already heard me talk about twice now. As well, we've linked off to episode 48 of the Netflix podcast, Beyond the Black Rainbow, which was our last discussion with Mike Grasso. So if you're not sick of the sound of him and my voices jabbering on at each other, be sure to check that one out. As far as other links, you can check out the Letterboxd review that I mentioned, where the writer makes fun of Dave Chappelle fans. The Room 237 review from RogerEbert.com that I mentioned... Uh, Mike sending to me detailing how little work the movie actually does in terms of evaluating the various theories. And then we've got links off to each of the different theorists' works. So Bill Blakemore wrote a review of The Shining called The Family of Man. Jeffrey Cox wrote a book called The Wolf at the Door, Stanley Kubrick, History, and The Holocaust. Jay Widener's article, Secrets of The Shining, or How Faking the Moon Landings Nearly Cost Stanley Kubrick His Marriage and His Life. John Felt Ryan wrote a post about watching The Shining forwards and backwards. And Julie Kearns has done a shot-by-shot analysis of The Shining, so we've got links off to all of those. And to finish this all off, we've included links either on Netflix, on Amazon, or both for all of the movies, series, and books that we talked about, including Beyond the Black Rainbow, the new Dave Chappelle comedy specials, Grand Designs, The Great British Bake Off, a.k.a. The Great British Baking Show, uh, The Immortalists, the Lucas Brothers comedy special on drugs, The Mindy Project, Mystery Science Theater 3000, Mystery Science Theater 3000 The Return, Natural Born Killers, The Office, Reptilicus, which is part of a four-movie pack on Amazon for just 10 bucks, The Shining, and the two fan theory books that I mentioned detailing the fan theories of Buffy and Angel fans. The books are called Seven Seasons of Buffy and Five Seasons of Angel. So you can find links to all of those on the episode's show notes at netflixblog.wordpress.com. You can find us on all sorts of social media platforms. We're on Facebook as Netflix, on Twitter at NetflixPod, where you can also find me at Dylan Clark Moore, and we're on SoundCloud as Netflix Podcast. You can find me on Letterboxd as well as Dylan Clark Moore. That's D-Y-L-A-N-C-L-A-R-K-M-O-O-R-E. If you'd like to support the show, there are a ton of ways that you can do so. You can start by heading over to Apple Podcasts, formerly known as iTunes or Google Play, and subscribing so that each week's episode comes straight to you. Even if you're not using either of those, if you search for the Netflix podcast, I'm sure you'll be able to find us. While you're on whatever platform you use, feel free to drop a rating and a review to let us know what you think. You can also contribute directly to Netflix by way of our Patreon campaign. The Netflix podcast is produced and edited by me, Dylan Clark Moore. The theme music is provided by Zach Moore. Thank you so very much and very sincerely for checking out this episode of the Netflix podcast. And be sure to join me here next time for a whole new conversation about a whole new movie from the Netflix catalog. Because even if you think you've seen it all, you ain't streamed nothing yet. 